Welcome to another episode of the Converge Challenge podcast. I'm Colin Gray and I'm bringing you another interview episode this time around. Uh, we've got Caroline Barrell from Elasmogen who went through the Converge Challenge back in 2015. Now I'll let Caroline describe a bit more about what her company does but I'll let you know now it's in the pharmaceutical industry and I found this story really interesting for a few different reasons. The main one being Caroline's journey towards her company. Now if you're an academic out there or even still studying, PhD, postdoc, whatever that might be, and you're thinking about the route you might take in future, this might be particularly interesting to you because Caroline ended up in big pharmaceutical and big corporate companies over quite a few years with her technology, but then ended up back in her own company. And the story behind how that happened has quite a few twists and turns, but she still ended up where she wanted to be running her own company. So if you've been thinking about taking the same route, but it feels like a risk, or you'd just like to know a bit more about what might be in store, then I think Caroline's story will be really, really useful to you. Okay, so let's find out first, what exactly was Caroline's involvement right at the beginning when the idea for the technology that powers Elasmogen was generated? The actual technology, the innovation, the first discovery is embedded in the University of Aberdeen Mm -hmm. and the research team at the University of Aberdeen in collaboration with the University of Maryland and it was one of these wonderful serendipitous scientific discoveries where they were looking at the immune system of sharks and sharks are the oldest vertebrates to have a full toolbox like you and me. They're 450 million years old, these beautiful animals. Yet they have B cells, they've got antibodies, they've got T cells. They've got everything in place to protect themselves against external challenges. And the team were really looking to understand more about these antibodies and the repertoire, the types of antibodies in these animals. And it came down to them running one of these gels in the lab and looking at it and thinking, okay, I can see what I expected to see, but now there's something else there and we don't know what it is. And the beauty of that is, is that discovery is really looking at the same thing as everybody else, but thinking something different. And thankfully, they thought something different and they pursued it. (laughs) And that wee band on the gel was this novel antibody-like molecule, Uh these so-called VNARs. And on the back of that, the university then filed IP, Mm -hmm. which was a very smart thing to do at the time, very forward thinking. And then the technology was licensed to a spin-out company, called Haptogen. Mm -hmm. And Haptogen was an antibody discovery company. And I joined at that point. Right. So I'm not claiming to be part of the original innovation. That (laughs) would be terribly unfair to take that credit. (laughs) But certainly I enjoyed learning about it and was very much part of the team in Haptogen who then took over the development of it. And I loved, I loved that. That kind of, to me, marked the transition from me moving out of academia at that time into a biotech company for the first time. And what, just to jump forward a little bit, what was it that they spotted? What did these antibodies do in a total layman's terms? Why (laughs) why did they think it was worth pursuing for us? Yeah, sure. No, so it's antibodies. You and I have antibodies. Uh Everybody has antibodies. Antibodies are incredible. They are like your internal army. They protect you against external challenges, Mm -hmm. bacteria, Mm -hmm. fungus, parasites, all of these nasties that are out there to invade your body and live inside you. And so immunity is based on production of antibodies to protect you. 
And so, you know, I'm going to take a snapshot of decades and decades of research here <laughs> and say that, you know, we've had paradigm shifts in the understanding of drug development and turning antibodies on their head and actually using them as drugs themselves. So taking them outside the body, mm -hmm. if you like, and then training them to target disease molecules inside the body and then injecting them back into people. Mm -hmm. So they then go back in the body and hone out and find and bind to that disease target. And the differences with our antibodies and the shark antibody-like molecules is really multiple fold. So one is the size. Our antibodies are big from a molecular perspective, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they are chunky. They have sugars hanging off of them. They're right. complicated molecules, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. They have two arms and those two arms bind one single disease target. Shark antibody-like molecules are much, much smaller, about a tenth the size, right? Now, why that's important when it comes to developing a new drug is that they can penetrate further into the body. They can think about a tumor, for example, mm -hmm. right? A tumor mm -hmm. is a mass of cells. If you have something smaller, it will go further into that tumor and have a better effect. Okay, right. Another aspect is they are single chain. So what I mean by that is they are simple. The antibodies that we have have lots of different chains that have to come to together. Shark antibody-like molecules are molecularly simple and they can we can link them together to bind multiple different targets at the same time. And that's crucial. If you think about the complexity of disease, you think about the variables, the amount of different things involved in diseases, the individuality of the patients, all of these things, you really want to hit as many things as you can to really trying to resolve that disease yeah, state. Yeah. And so I think about it as forming daisy chains or back in my era, it would have been stickle bricks. Yeah, sure. <laughs> People might not know what they are anymore, but like Lego, okay? And then yes. you can clip them together and you can make a single product or a single drug that then can be injected. So there are multiple benefits of these domains. And so commercially, uh, they're exciting mm -hmm. as an opportunity, but medically, clinically, they have the potential to really make a difference in the treatment of patients. Excellent. So you joined Haptogen then at that point. Um, what were you doing with them at that when you were taken on? Yeah, sure. So... Um, the thing about small biotechs is you tend to have multiple roles, which is great. So I was originally taken on, I think my original business card said contracts manager. And then I was alliance manager. So working with the BD team, working with external customers. And then I became programs manager. So I had kind of three hats, if you like. And so I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was the transition from me out of academia into a commercial setting for science. And it was also the transition for me out of the laboratory hmm. into a setting where I was overviewing the science. Mm -hmm. And there was so much going on. There was lots of different programs of work covering lots of different disease areas from oncology to inflammatory disease. And then you were also dealing with all the external customers, if you like. So we had a lot of contracts working in collaboration and in partnerships with companies from all over the world. And I adored that as well. So interacting with other scientific teams, understanding what they wanted, what their problems were, how to solve those. And also just getting the luxury of going out and meeting these people. So yeah, for me, yeah. it was just, it just was right up my street. Yes. That's the kind of person I am. I yeah. love networking. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that must have helped when you uh, moved on then, when you were bought over. Was it bought over or taken over? What was yeah. the process? Acquisition. 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 Okay. So this is what happens in our world is, you know, there's, you're a small fish. 
there's plenty of big fish out there that will just <laughs> consume you. And this is kind of, this was in the mid noughties. Mm -hmm. And in the mid noughties, biologics were really uh, fascinating. They were really exciting. They were really taking over. And it wasn't just classical biologics. And by what I mean by that is the classical antibodies that I'd made reference to, but next generation biologics, if you like. And this technology fits with next generation. So it's it's like any other technology. You 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 tweak it, you improve it, it evolves. And so the big pharmaceutical companies were hunting. They were out searching for smaller biotechs mm -hmm. who had great innovative ideas, platforms, products. And Haptogen was one of them. Yeah, yeah. And so yes, I was part of Haptogen when this acquisition happened and they were acquired, gosh, going back to 2007 actually by one of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies in the US, a company called Wyeth. And if you've never heard of Wyeth, um, they are uh, involved in a lot of pharmaceuticals, but also a lot of over-the-counter products. So if you've ever used ChapStick, if you've ever popped an anodin the morning after the night before, that's that company, that's who made those. A global player, no question about it. And so they came in, they saw the potential of the assets, uh, of the IP that Haptogen had, and they acquired them. Mm -hmm. What was that like? <laughs> oh my, it was, it was scary. Yeah. It was kind of entering into the unknown because yeah, yeah. here we were, we were a small biotech company in the northeast of Scotland in Aberdeen doing really well. There wasn't any question about that. I was loving it. Mm. And then you, then this big monstrous company came along and acquired us and nobody knew what was going to happen next. Now, it's human nature not to like to know what's going to happen next. Yeah. You know, you get anxious, you're yeah, concerned, absolutely. you know. <laughs> and so when they came on board, um, they basically said that because the team were in Aberdeen, the team knew the technology, they wanted to keep us in Aberdeen. And we were just absolutely delighted about that. It was such a relief. And so I then transitioned from being the programs manager, the alliance manager, the contracts manager from Haptogen into a team leader in Wyeth, and it was a team leader of this technology, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this this shark Venar technology. Yeah, sure. Um, they saw the potential of it. They wanted to really push it forward. They wanted to feed their pipeline of new drugs using this next generation technology. And I was given the responsibility of leading that team. And so we went from a company of 35 people to a company of 54,000 people. <laughs> Slightly uh, different. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit different. And also just kind of the culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a, in a small biotech company, you know what's going on, yeah. right? Everybody knows what's happening. It's very transparent. And then you go into this complex corporate monster um, and suddenly we were inundated with people from America coming in and, and giving us this this training, this business training, this, you know, you're not allowed to speak about anything, do anything. You know, yeah. it was all quite intense, actually. Yeah. Um, and at the start of it, it was nerve wracking. But then when you got to know the scientists, we worked with scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and also in Dublin, Ireland. That was where the global biotherapeutics team were located. I have to say, they were incredible. They are incredible. And the access to the resources was just mind-blowing. Really? Yeah. You know, you, you come out of a small biotech lab where the throughput is measured by the number of hands you've got at the bench to these big companies who have 
robotics. They've got whole departments to do the sequencing, the analysis, mm. etc. Mm. And of course, they're all over the world. So if you send something off at the end of one day, the next morning you come in, you've got the data analysed and it's there. <laughs> I mean, it's just lush. If you're in that, this world, it's yeah. just, it's like being in a candy store. Luxury, yeah. Oh, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. Yeah. So there's so many ways I want to go from there, uh, from wondering how that compares to what you have now, for example, and the size of your team. But b- before we get to that, it, it, the other thing was the acquisition. Yeah. That is, I mean, so many people in our space that have been through Converge, that have been through the Enterprise Fellowships, that's what they're aiming towards, an acquisition. Yes. Does, does it change how you think about building your company? The fact that you've been through that before, that you've had that experience, that does that yeah. change your exit plans or lack of it's yeah it's a it's a funny thing actually and and I'll be honest with you I think because I've been through this um two things one is the change for the team uh which was kind of strange but it was good ultimately you mm-hmm. know change change can certainly be good mm-hmm. but what I also saw was what the the benefit for the founder so the people who actually founded haptogen mm-hmm. financially they did they did very well you know and deservedly so because they had built up the company and the university also benefited as well yeah yeah and you know when you have your conversations like i'm sure many people who are going through the converse challenge are having with investors it's all about return on investment and yeah. if i put my money in at x are you going to give me 5x or 10x and how long is it going to take an acquisition is a normal answer to that question and and a normal driver for a company like Mm -hmm. ours Mm -hmm. is to make yourself attractive to a big pharma company. So ultimately they will acquire you and everybody benefits from that financially um, and and so on and so forth. So initially that was my driver. I thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to go for. And then I kind of got into the small biotech world, my my own biotech world, um, when we founded the company. And I just, I'm so... I'm thoroughly enjoying it yeah, and I can yeah. see the potential of it. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, I, I really want to build this company. I want to expand this company. I want to employ more scientists. I want to to establish more collaborations globally yeah, yeah. to really see where this technology can go. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thrive on that. I, I get really excited about that. And that's kind of, and you know, this will go out and the investors will be horrified when I'm saying this. Not that I, it's not going to be capable of being acquired. You know, yes. it'll just be of yeah. a higher value, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we do all Absolutely. of this. Yeah, but it really is. It's so special to be part of a therapeutics company in Scotland. Yeah. And there are, there are a number of excellent therapeutic companies out there. There's no question about that. But I just want to build another one. I want to build a pharma company in mm-hmm. Scotland, you know, yeah. and I guess that's where my heart is right now. So no rush. <laughs> no, no, no rush, no rush. These things take time. Yeah. Okay. We'll jump back to you're in the big pharma company. How did that, I know the story took a little bit of a twist. How did that go about then? Yes. Okay. So yeah, I mentioned that there are always larger fish, right? Yes. So uh, Wyeth was not immune, you uh-huh. know, it was top 10 pharma, but you know, if you're top 10, there's still the top three. Mm-hmm. And so, and big pharma do the same as, as bigger pharma do the same as big pharma. They're looking for the next acquisition as well. You know, it's, it's a strange situation in big pharma companies. People consider them as being nasty giants and, you know, uh, making medicines that are too expensive and such like, but it's actually quite a fragile environment because they pump in billions of dollars in developing drugs right from the start, right the way through to the clinic. And it takes 10, 15 years. 
And then by that time, their IP is old. Mm. And so they only have a few years to make revenues off of those. And so they have to continually keep feeding that pipeline, right? And so even the biggest pharma has to continually do that. And the quickest way to do that is to acquire another company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Wyeth at that point were experts. They had an excellent uh, array of biologics, of vaccines, of, of really powerful drugs on the market. But also they were unusual because they pumped 17 to 20% back into their early stage R&D. Mm -hmm. So they invested into that starting point, that innovation. Yeah, sure. that's, wh that's why I really enjoyed working for them, to be honest. They were very innovative. And so when Pfizer was sniffing around looking for a company that was exciting and innovative and could feed their pipeline, yeah. they saw Wyeth as the mm. small fish, right? <laughs> it's, it's all relative. Yes, Size is relative. <laughs> and so Pfizer came along and they acquired Wyeth. Right. And my goodness, it was like the best kept secret in the pharma world. We were oblivious to it. I remember on literally, we, we on the Friday... There was an email came round and said, oh, um, you know, we were going to acquire this little biotech, but we're actually stepping out of that. And then there was a few rumours about why would you be stepping out of that? Is there something going on? And the response email was, there's nothing going wrong. Just bash on people. It's everything is fine. And then by Monday, we got the email saying, oh, uh, just to let you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've now been acquired by Pfizer. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah. It really was. And so... I go back to stepping from a biotech company of 35 people to 54,000 people in Wyeth. Yeah, yeah. And now we were going from 54,000 people to 110,000 people to the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world. Yeah. So, yes, my goodness, that was yeah. kind of like a, you know, you, I kind of been through it already. And I'm thinking, here we go again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then with Pfizer. Yeah. Um, how do you go from 100,000 odd back to... Yes, <laughs> yes. You take a very large HR knife and uh -huh. you start slashing that company, right? right? So okay. you, it's not sustainable. You've got two behemoths mm. coming together yeah. and there's always going to be attrition and that attrition is always going to be painful. OK, and so we carried on as you do. Stiff upper lip, carried on in Pfizer, carried on being who we were being, working hard, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this nervousness about what was going to happen next. And to be honest, it was not a surprise to us, you know. Um, and I remember it was one of these ridiculous situations where I was over in Cambridge, Massachusetts at this um, seminar program and I was presenting and, and the head of our department was there and he's smiling and he's shaking my hand and nodding and saying, oh, that's really good stuff, Caroline, the work is great. And I'm like, yeah, because the team's phenomenal in Aberdeen. And then the next thing is I travel back over the weekend and I get back into the office and he's standing there with the head of HR. And I'm thinking, OK, this doesn't look good. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. And really? they, they sat us all down oh. in the meeting room and they said, guys, I've got some news for you. And the news isn't great. Mm. Uh, we're shutting the site. OK, we are making your jobs redundant. Um, but, you know, it'll take a period of time and we're going to bring in a support team to give you ideas about what to do next and to make sure that you can deal with all of this and so on and so forth. And I remember the, the it, it happened to be a lady that was head of HR and she came and she sat in my office and she said and she showed me a graph. And I'm like, OK, I like graphs. I do graphs. I'm a scientist. <laughs> and she said, Caroline, you're going to go through these different feelings, these different stages. Right. You're going to start with denial. And then you're going to get really upset and then you're going to get angry and then you're going to be OK. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Fine. OK, honestly, bye, you know. And 
My goodness, it was so true. I've never been made redundant mm-hmm. like that before in my mm-hmm. life. And I went through all of those stages really? within 24 hours. Yeah, 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 it was just incredible. First of all, it was like, this is not happening. Just carry on. The next thing is I got really upset. Was it something that I did? Did I not lead the team very well? Is it a failure on my part? And then I got really angry with them. <laughs> and I thought, goodness <laughs> me, you know, you don't know what you're losing here, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, your loss. And then I kind of calmed down and I thought, right, okay, Caroline, let's think about this. A door's just been slammed in your face. Let's sit down and work out what next. And that's exactly what we did. Which was something around the IP, wasn't it? The IP reverted. Yes. How did that all happen? Yes, no, absolutely. So as Pfizer was marching out of Aberdeen, um, the university knocked on their door and said, excuse me, I think you'll find that you don't own the IP. Mm-hmm. So the IP had never been assigned. That's yeah. the technical term for, mm-hmm. for IP transitioning ownership. Mm-hmm. And to cut a kind of long story short, Haptogen had originally licensed the IP from the University of Aberdeen. And then when Wyeth acquired Haptogen, that license went into Wyeth. And Wyeth had intended to assign it, to get it, to own it. Yeah. But that never happened. And when Pfizer came on board, Pfizer said, well, you know, we're not, taking this IP because this is all Wyeth legal stuff. We have to redo the whole thing ourselves. And with a big company like that, it takes so long to sort out all of the legalities that it just simply didn't happen. And I take my hat off to the university because the university were really, I mean, not aggressive, but they were, you know, robust in their response and said, well, I'm afraid that has to come back. Unless you can commit to developing this technology in the company all of that IP comes back to us because it, we own it. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't just the IP, actually. There was actually a tangible asset portfolio as well. So some of the domains, these antibody-like molecules, some of the so-called libraries, which is where we extract them from as oh, well, okay. yeah. also came back to the university. And so this this was the starting point. This yeah. was this was my foundation. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I started getting excited about it, thinking, okay, we've got all of this sitting here, right? We've got a team who are now redundant, mm-hmm. and I know how fabulous they are. Mm-hmm. Let's bring it all together and let's make this happen. And how did you so did you have to then license that from Aberdeen? How did that mm-hmm. how did that turn into a company? Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely spot on. So that that was exactly what happened. So the first thing we needed to do, which is what you always needed to do, is to get some cash, right? You can't do much without money. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> and so, um, and this was not me by myself by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my co-founder, Andy Porter, played mm-hmm. a huge role in this as well, as, as well as support from other people. And so together we wrote a proof of concept uh, to Scottish Enterprise. And also at the same time, uh, a BBSRC super follow-on fund, it was called at the time. And we were successful. Um, they saw the potential of the technology. They could see where it could go. They could see the commercial value of it, etc. And so we managed to pull together. I mean, at the time, it was about £1.5 million, right, which is substantial, which was fantastic, mm-hmm. in so-called non-dilutive money. So this is pre-company, if you like. And so that enabled us to pull the team together to, to set up a lab uh, and to get things going. Yeah, yeah. And we were focusing really on bolstering that IP, so filing new IP during that period of time. So that period of time was two and a half, three years before we spun out. And also developing and progressing the science. 
um, and also getting the story out there. So that's when I started on my my trail of biopartnering, investor <laughs> meetings, <Yes>. and you know, <laughs> taking the old Being carpet the bag out and trying to sell my goods. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, my yeah. elixir of life and all the rest of it, um, which was great for me because it was all good experience. Yeah, and yeah. then that money obviously got to the point where it was running out, and mm-hmm. and that was the critical point where we had to to then get the company up and running. Yeah, yeah. So does that take us up to the sort of 2015-ish Converge and yeah. RSE and stuff like that? What, Absolutely. At what point were you then when you applied for the Converge Challenge? Sure. So, I mean, the way that the way that I kind of think about it is that we had, and I've, I've kind of referred to it before like this, we had all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, right? So we had we had IP, we had platforms, we had a product enabler, we had some domains which had shown some efficacy and some assays and, and these kind of experiments that we do, etc. And we had some idea about what disease we were going to go after, but there was like lots of different directions and lots of different areas of focus and, and lots of different paths yeah, we yeah. could have gone down, to be yeah. quite honest with you. Um, I had never, as much as I'd worked in businesses, I'd never, ever set up a business in my life, right? Okay. (laughs) Amateur, absolute amateur. And so you're absolutely right. The timing was 2015 and I'd heard about the Converge Challenge. I'd heard about the Converge Challenge through the university. I had taken the train down to, I think it was Strathclyde at the time, to listen more about it. There was a there was a wee event where they were describing what the Converge was about. <clears throat> and I sat in that uh, lecture theatre and this incredible person, Olga, stepped out onto the stage and she described what the Converge challenge was all about. And I kind of thought, oh, okay. So this is about people giving you the expertise Looking at your business plan, analyzing where you're going, what the business model is, etc. Helping you do that, helping you mold what that looks like, taking you on this journey, and then at the end of it, you might even win something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come on, what's what's <laughs> what's not to like? This is what I need. I need mentoring. I need. I just need. I need to know if I'm doing the right thing. You mm. know. I know it sounds mm. really silly, but it's. I've never done when you've never done something before you're kind of afraid of of making mistakes right yeah, from the onset. And there, yeah. there, there was too much depending on it. I had people working with me and mm-hmm. I didn't want to let them down. So the best thing for me to do is what you should always do is just to ask someone who knows more. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And so the Converse Challenge was just the perfect timing for me, um, for me as an individual, because it helped, you know, mold me into having the confidence and, and having the guts to kind of make decisions and push the company forward. Yeah. But more importantly, it gave me the time and the expertise to crystallize what what direction the company should take, what the focus should be, what the business model should be, and and ultimately just to kind of get it out there, just to do it, actually, what yeah, I want yeah. of a better word, yeah. just spin the company out, you yeah. know? Um, and it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Yeah. Do you remember any particular aha moments during that year or around that time where oh. where you really felt like you changed from either academic to yeah. entrepreneur or <laughs> working in a 
large team to doing it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, oh, I still can't use the word entrepreneur because no. you know, I, I can't. Well, I can't because I can't even spell it. But um, it's a, it's just a case of, yeah, you're right. So in in the world of academia, which I loved and and still interact with with a lot of academics, they're phenomenal people, and they're the people who know more about their area than anybody else. So you know, we we need that kind of understanding and that in depth knowledge. I think in the world of academia, you can perhaps afford to be a bit more blue sky. You can kind of flip from one idea to another and you've got a little bit more luxury to, to explore the science. Yeah, you know, yeah. you really, really do. Whereas, and, and that's where some of the best ideas come out of and the best discoveries, there's no question about that. But I think when you transition over into the commercial side of science, it becomes much more applied. So what you have to do is you can't do everything. You've got a small team of people. You've got a smaller bank account. You need to make a decision and you need to take a direction. You need to take a punt. And so that's what I learned was just to have the confidence to do that, to be a bit more courageous about that and just to, to choose a line of direction and go down it. But equivalently, you've got to know when to stop going down that line. And if nobody's picking up on it, the investors are not interested in it, the farmer's not listening to you, yeah, you've yeah. got to stop and you've yes. got to think about, you know, I may think it's right, but the market's telling me it's wrong to, to backtrack and then rethink that. Um, another thing that I learned very quickly as well, actually, which is something we've been incredibly successful doing as a business, is also gaining economies of of scale and economies of scope critically which is also mm -hmm. important for a for a platform based company through partnerships through collaborations right so i'm a big believer in cross fertilization across different sciences across different sectors and we've got some fantastic collaborations um i'll i'll mention almac discovery for one these guys are chemists um, I don't do chemistry. <laughs> I don't have no idea about these small molecules, right? Um, but what I do know is that if we take one of our binding domains that binds a tumour and we attach one of their nasty toxin chemicals to it, it will get further into the tumour. It will get into the tumour cell and drop the bomb of the warhead, the chemical. And it's it's like targeting chemotherapy. You know, mm. I mean, we couldn't have done that by ourselves. Almac couldn't have done it by themselves, but by collaborating, we're creating a new product. And so we may be, and we are a very small team of people in Aberdeen, but we've got five times the number of people working in other companies really? yeah. with the technology. And yeah, yeah. and that's just, it just makes a huge amount of sense. And it's terribly yeah. exciting yeah. to do it as well. Yeah. So that goes back to what you said earlier about all the resources, the luxury mm. of working in a massive company yeah. and comparing that to what you do now. So you have yeah. a, how many people on your team now? So we have eight full-time employees that are employed by the company and we've got an additional four consultants on top of that. Okay. So 12 so in total. Dozen people. A perfect dozen, yeah. But you you expand that capability by partnerships, yes. by working with companies that perhaps specialise in other areas and can work really closely with you. No, absolutely. No question at all. And that's a combination of different types of companies as well. So, I mean, we struck a deal with Amgen. Amgen are one of the biggest biotech companies in the world. It's, it's a US-based company. They're amazing. And that was in, the, in quite an exciting, um, disruptive technology. That's taking our antibody-like domains uh, inside cells. And they saw the potential of that. So we struck a two-target, quite a narrow deal. Always keep it narrow. It gives you more options. <laughs> so a two-target deal with them. 
Um, we also work with Almac, which is a medium-sized company, like I mentioned, in the chemistry. But I'm also very keen to work alongside small biotechs like us, right, um, who have very little money and very limited resources. Yeah. And I just think if we come together in one particular area, then we could maybe get the attention of pharma together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, share, share, you know, share the upsides, because by yourself, there may not be an upside, but together yeah. there could be an upside. Do you think... I mean, pharmaceutical seems to me, from an outside point of view, a, 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 an industry that you can only work in at a huge scale. It just seems like it seems it seems <laughs> yeah. takes to take so much money to yeah. to run the trials, to go through all the different stages. Is there are there advantages though to being small in pharmaceuticals? Yes, absolutely. So when you're small, you're nimble, you're lean, you can make decisions quickly. There's no question about that. When we were part of the bigger machine in, in the company, the pharmaceutical company, it took a long time to get the go-ahead to do anything, really. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost it has to go up a certain number of levels before. And it's actually quite, although it's, it's big and there's lots of resources, it's quite restrictive when it comes to doing new things, new yeah, ideas yeah, and yeah. innovations. You've got yeah. to get the go-ahead, etc., which I absolutely respect. Whereas when you're small and you're nimble, you can change track very easily. And that's exactly what we did. So when we when we were developing something that didn't seem to get any traction yeah. when it came to speaking to investors, we then sat down and we said, OK, let's think about it. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> this ain't working. Um, let's try something else. And that's exactly what we did. Yeah. And I love that, you know, yeah. because yeah. you have to be able to be flexible, you know, adaptable because, yes. you know, you're evolving. Yeah. And the market changes. It's fluid. It's dynamic. And, and you have to be able to change with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier on that one of the benefits of going through the the business training with Converge Challenge and other other schemes you were involved with, where mm. part of it was having the courage to take that punt. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the biggest punt you ever took? Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh gosh, that's a that's a difficult one actually. I mean, for me as an individual, I think the biggest punt is actually setting up this business. If I'm being perfectly yeah, honest yeah, with you, yeah. I mean it's. I've been kind of brought up, um, brought up in a kind of environment where you get a job, you stay in that job and then you retire, you know, yeah, and yeah. I've always had stability as really at the front of my mind, as with, you know, many of us, you, you, you work, you earn, you may have a family, you've got a mortgage. And so money is kind of an important aspect of that. Right. And I've always striven towards looking for stability in employment. Mm -hmm. And when this opportunity arose, I kind of thought, oh, blimey, am, am I the right person? Is this the right time? Oh, it's such a, I'm, I'm stepping out here. This is scary, you know. Yeah, yeah. But then I kind of sat down and I thought, well, Caroline, get a grip. It's look at what you've done so far. It's I was a postdoc for many, many years. Yeah. Right. That's not stable. You move from one postdoc to the next postdoc to the next postdoc. And then I worked at Haptogen and I thought, OK, great. This is a stable job. And then they were acquired. And I thought, oh, well, OK. Next into Wyeth, right, that's another stable job, but no, not really. It then was acquired by <laughs> Pfizer. Yeah, and so I'm yeah. you know, there is no thing as stability, you know, yeah. you know, and truth be had. And so I took a punt at starting this yeah. company, I guess, is the biggest punt that I've taken. And now when I look at it, because, you know, it, it dates back to 2012 and to 2013 when we first started it. This is the most stable job I've had. Really? Yes. <laughs> this is the most unstable, stable job I've ever yes. had. Yeah. Because you've got control over it. Don't yeah. You? Yeah. yeah. Far that's more right. control than any of the other ones, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. 
is that I mean that that's one of the it's a big jump isn't it especially as an academic you know you work in a university for 10 15 20 years yeah. um or even in the early days you know you've got a long career ahead of you if you just stay mm. is there anything so that's good reassurance in the first place is there anything you would say to somebody like that who's thinking about an idea but thinks it's too risky is there anything you can do to mitigate it to Oh, how would you how would you frame that? What I do or what I did and what I continue to do is I surround myself by great people. I mean, that's it. It really is quite simple. You know, I know what I know and I know what I don't know and I know what I need around me. And I've always been a believer in surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you. And that's a low hurdle when it comes to me. So, <laughs> um, you know, I come back to the point where I'd never set up a business before. Right. That's fine. So my co-founder has. I lacked a lot of the skills, a lot of the, you know, the kind of gutsy, how do you do this? How do you do that? I signed up for the Converse Challenge. You know, I, I tapped into that expertise, that network. They were there. I was very fortunate to be successful with a Royal Society Enterprise Fellowship as well. That's exactly the same scenario. You're surrounded by people who can help you through this process along this journey. And so that's that gave me comfort and that through that comfort, that gave me confidence and through that confidence, it gave me the kind of courage and the guts just to keep going and, and to, to give it the best shot I had. And so that would be my advice is you've had a great idea, you know, go, you know, you've got to convert it into something, you know, what, yeah. if not now, when and yes. what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, yeah just, do yeah, just do it. Just do it. What are you most proud of with Elasmogen? Oh, gosh. It's just a multitude of things, actually. You know, I kind of, what we do is tough and mm -hmm. it, and it's incredibly stressful. And, you know, I, I go through ups and downs. There's no question about that. That's the nature of science itself, um, but also the nature of business. But I think when I walk into the office in the morning, this is going to sound really cheesy, but when I walk into the office in the morning, I kind of look around and I think, this is great. You know, we've created this, mm. you know, and the guys come in and they're smiling and they're laughing and we have good crack. You know, we work hard, but we enjoy ourselves as well. And I think I'm just proud of that, you mm. know, that mm. creating that culture, creating the opportunity for us to come together to, to build the company. Um, and yeah, I just kind of smile and I think, yeah, not bad. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> a good feeling to have when you come yeah. to work. <laughs> yeah. So thinking of the the future, then you mentioned that um, almost a disparity between taking on funding and where you should be going with that. But yeah. you're thinking about maybe much longer term than that. Where what do you see yourself doing in the next five ten years? Where will it be? Yeah. So I mean, absolutely building the company. As I said before, there's no question about that. And we've kind of got a, it's one of these hybrid kind of models. And so we're, we're pushing forward internally our own drug programs. And so we have candidates that could potentially go into patients um, if we get funding in the next 18 to 24 months. That's a really exciting prospect mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. um, like I said before, the, the world of drug discovery is, is a long one. It's a long journey. And I've always been driven by being a small part of the design of a drug that eventually gets to the clinic and eventually does is beneficial to patients. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's the end of the day. That's what we're in it for. There's no question. So I'm 
that's over the next few years, I would love to see our own drugs going forward and the day that our own drugs are actually in clinical trials. That's very mm-hmm. exciting to me. Um, the other side of the business is coming back to these collaborations and these partnerships and mm-hmm. such like. And so over, over the next few years, and that's very much has been my focus over the last year, is going out and speaking to other companies, getting excited about other people's technologies, looking at opportunities, looking at the, the you know, something new, you know, coming together and, and building some new products or looking at other modalities that we could exploit our technology in. You know, we're doing work in nanomedicine. We're doing work in these drug conjugates, for example. We're doing work inside cells and as well as outside cells. And it's science is just an exciting area to work in, you know, and... That over the next few years is expanding those partnerships, expanding those collaborations and yeah, just yeah. seeing what comes out of those. I sure. get great pleasure in working with other people and I I still get excited about the science. So yeah. it's good. Yeah. Excellent. Is there any, just the last thing then, is there anything you mentioned there about getting the, the product, the technology right in front of patients? What, mm. what is there any one particular barrier between you and that? What do you need to conquer? Ka-ching. <laughs> it's 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 money. Really, it's money. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, it, there, there's a lot that can go wrong in the development of a drug from the start to the finish, and that's not necessarily anything you've done wrong. It's just the nature of the disease or the biology, or there's some challenge pharmacokinetically or any of these kind of things. It might be just the type or the genotype of the patient. So, you know, what their DNA makeup is, it doesn't, the drug doesn't happen to work in them. So there's lots of complexity in that. So that's certainly a challenge and there's multiple hurdles taking a drug through to the end point where it's approved and it's actually beneficial. But ultimately for any small biotech company, it's the money in order to do the science and it's the money to do the science the best you can. And so that's costly mm-hmm. and, and you, you need to invest at the start of the process to take the right candidate. So out of all of these libraries that we have, of all of these domains, we need to be able to choose, we need to be able to anoint the right one. Right. Sure. And the more resource you have, the higher the degree of success you have through that process. And as you quite rightly said, you know, clinical trials are are really almost in for a small biotech to enter into. So you either need to partner with a pharmaceutical company who have that financial firepower to take it through to the clinic, or you need to get investment yourself into the company in order to do that. So it really is, you know, it comes back to the old thing that money makes the world go round. And and I'm afraid it's simply true for us. That's uh, the same in any industry, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Any final words then in terms of... what would you say to people that are thinking about going out on this journey? Is there any, any what advice do you find yourself giving most often to people <laughs> looking to follow? I'm sure you meet many people at Converge yes. Challenge events, RSE events. What what do you most often say? Yeah, so I think that um, it's a case of, for me, it's it's about, and, and, and the way that I've changed and the way that I've developed and evolved is really just just, and I'm going to say it's somebody else's tagline now, which is just go for it. <laughs> just do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's better to, to and this is, I'm going to use this phrase. I've used this phrase many times and um, it's a, a phrase that's kind of embraced who I am and, and how I've changed. And it's better to seek forgiveness than permission. Right. And that's, I've completely plagiarized that from somebody else. But 
it's so true. I used to sit back and wait and think about what the right thing to do was. But now I'm just like, just I've got to step out now and I've just got to go for it and I've got to do it. Um, because if you don't make those decisions, if you don't go forward, then ultimately you're, you're, you're damaging the company, you know, so yeah, yeah. it's guts and determination. Yeah. It's great advice, one I've followed many times. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Caroline. That's okay, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Converge Challenge podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to know more about the Converge Challenge itself, find out more about the competition or even enter it for your own business idea, pop over to convergechallenge.com for all the details. 